Let's pray once again. Heavenly Father, there were three judged to be criminals that day that were crucified. May we this morning not focus solely on our sin as a criminal. May we not focus on others' sin as criminals. May we focus on our Savior, on that cross, who became a criminal, who became a curse for us, that we might be a blessing, that we might be freed sons and daughters. Holy Spirit, Help me, help us, focus, focus, see that good man, your son, you, Jesus, crucified for us, for in that lies our life. Do this, I pray, to your great glory and our great good. In Christ's name, amen. Um, just like it was overly ambitious for me to plan a cookout uh, today, it's overly ambitious for me to uh, come before you and say we're going to cover verse by verses 10 through 24. But we are going to focus on the first five verses, 10 through 14. And then I'm going to call attention to a couple of verses in that latter section of verses 15 through 24. And then next week, or 15 through 25, next week, uh, Mike Miller's going to take up with verse 26 as we continue to go verse by verse through Galatians. In the 16th century, Martin Luther, in the monastery as a monk, prior to the Protestant Reformation, serving faithfully as a Roman Catholic monk, came across Habakkuk 2, where it said, The righteous shall live by faith. But he didn't understand that verse. Later, he would go into a period of great depression, as he saw himself as someone under God's wrath, that when he imagined God seeing him, that he was found wanting. He wound up uh, on his bed in Italy from this Great Depression, thinking that he would die, and that he would die apart from God's pleasure. And then he heard that the Pope had issued an indulgence for any pilgrim that would go to Rome to St. John Lateran Church and that on their knees would mount the great stone stairs. That stairwell 
stairway at St. John Lateran was believed to have been the stairway from the judgment hall of Pontius Pilate. And those stone steps were believed to be stained with the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you were successful in mounting by your knees, pausing each step to pray a set of prayers, pausing each step to kiss that step and then mount on your knees the hard surface of another step, if you could complete that, then you'd be in good with God. So Martin went. Later his son would write, Thereupon as he mounted step by step, he reached a point where he ceased his prayers. It suddenly came to him from the prophet Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. He rose to his feet and he returned to Wittenberg and he took as his chief foundation for all of his doctrine, all of his preaching, all of his commentaries, and the fuel for the Reformation. That verse, the just shall live by faith. Later, Martin Luther himself would write about that experience on those stairs. Before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God and I was angry with Him. But when by the Spirit of God I understood those words, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. Then I felt born again like a new man. And I entered through the open doors of paradise itself. Our focus this morning is verse 11, where Paul cites Habakkuk that the righteous shall live by faith. Those that God justifies, pronounces clean, pronounces his favor upon them now and forever are those who live by faith. And the emphasis is by Paul's encouragement here, is that this is a faith that is alive. Our faith in Jesus Christ, when we see Him crucified on our behalf, that God now grants us favor, not because of our achievements, not because of our merit or goodness, but upon what Christ achieved on that cross, that when we see that, then we live and have a life from faith in that. In other words, it gives us life. But apart from that is no life at all. It's a drudge. It's a burden. It's wearisome. It, ex it exhausts us. When we rely on the law. Look at verse 10. 
those that rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now, Paul is going to do something here in order to apply what he's been saying. Week after week, if you've been in this series on Galatians, you're hearing the same thing. And you might think, well, why don't we move on to something different? This is so redundant. Justification is God's grace to us. It's not earned. It's unmerited. And this justification comes to us, a pronouncement. We we are now God's sons and daughters. By His grace, we receive that through faith alone by looking to Christ alone. And Paul, like Martin Luther said in his commentary on Galatians, is beating justification by faith alone into our heads. And this week, we turn and we see his application saying, if we are pronounced clean and whole in God's sight, not because of what we do or continue to do, be it obedience or sin, we are pronounced clean and whole solely by Christ's death and life on our behalf. When we see that, we're going to experience life. And that is the secret, as it were. That is where spiritual, all spiritual life lies. But Paul wants to, to get in this week. He wants to put before them that you know this, that if you rely on the works of the law, you don't experience life. You experience death. You experience a curse. Now, Paul is ingenious. Someone once said that if you're going to argue with a Methodist, you've got to be able to quote John Wesley. If you're going to argue with a Lutheran, you've got to be able to quote Martin Luther. If you're going to argue with a Calvinist, someone in the, the Reformed uh, Calvinist tradition, you've got to be able to quote John Calvin. And if you're going to argue about the law of the Jews, you've got to be able to quote Moses, the great lawgiver. And that's what he does. He goes here to Deuteronomy, and he says, the reason that we are cursed, rather than experiencing a life that comes only through faith, the reason that we experience death when we try to rely on the works of the law is that we cannot abide by all of them that are written down. He says, don't you know that if you don't abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them, there's no life there. There's a curse there. Now, let me give you a test this morning. When he says the book of the law, he's meaning all first, the Pentateuch of the great lawgiver Moses, the first five books of the Bible. But let's just start with the, the Ten Commandments. Let's just take the, the top ten laws that he's given us in the Ten Commandments. And I'm not going to ask that you raise your hands, but I want to start with number ten and do a countdown to number one. How many of you have ever wanted somebody else's stuff? Well, that's just about all of us, so that's, that's number ten. So we well, didn't obey that one. Uh, How many of you have ever said something that was untrue, not completely factually accurate about another person? 
How many of you have ever took something that was not yours? How many of you have ever had, now, now command number seven and command number six, I, we're going to thin the herd a little bit here because command number seven is sex outside of marriage. And command number six is do not murder. So I'm, I'm going to assume, hopefully not presume, that the majority of us have not committed sex outside of our marriage, those that are married. And the, there's no one in the room that has committed murder. Now, if there is, the elders would like to meet with you, pray with you, counsel you, and, and uh, take the next steps with you. But we'll leave those aside. We'll say we pass those laws. Number five, how many of you have ever ignored or blown off your mom? Okay. Uh, how many of you, number, command number four, how many of you have ever worked all week without a break? You didn't take one rest stop. Command number three, how many of you have ever used God to justify your actions? Or how many of you have ever said, God bless you, and it, you meant quite the opposite? Command number two, how many of you have ever loved a piece of furniture? Now, that sounds odd, doesn't it? That's the one about graven images. My mother, when I was growing up in the living room, had a red velvet chair that you were forbidden to sit upon. You could not touch that chair. It was for distinguished VIPs only. She loved that chair. You touch that chair, she's going to hurt you. Um, that chair was like new when she finally passed away. I mean, that, that chair, but that, that, that was an idol to her. She would get angry if you messed with that piece of furniture. Maybe there's something that you idolize. If I could just have it, it will it'll fulfill me. It'll give me life. I'll be somebody. Command number one, have you ever loved anything in the least bit more than you love God? Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, that's the law, but I did pretty good. Paul says, no percentages. You must abide by all things, and it's implied all the time. Break one law. Percentages don't count. There are no margins here. And there's no mulligans. Break one law one time, you're a lawbreaker. And you're under the curse. But it gets worse. It gets worse. You read in the book of Leviticus, there are over 600 laws. The Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, without grace, can beat you up. You can feel you can feel about this tall when you read Christ's Sermon on the Mount because he comes along and those two that we thought that we were doing pretty good on no sex outside of marriage, no murder he takes those very two and he says if you've done either of those in your mind you're guilty wow wow Paul says in verse 11 now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Is it now evident to you? We've been this long in Galatians. And he's telling the Galatian church now, he's saying, 
I hope that I've given you enough evidence to see that if you're relying upon your behavior, if you're keeping a written record or a mental checklist of saying, one day I'm going to stand before God. Even now God sees me and I'm, I'm, I'm great. In fact, this week God thinks I'm a very, very special son and daughter. Not so much last week. Last week was a bad week. This week's a good week. Well, why? What made the difference? Well, my actions. Paul's saying, no. It should be evident that our life is not based upon the law. Our life is based upon looking at Jesus Christ in faith, seeing Him carry the law, see the law that He faced its curse and judgment, and that gives us lift. That gives us life. And He says now, He says, it should be evident to you. You should have had all the evidence you need, even your own life, knowing that as we look historically, no one has been able to keep the law. We can't. We can't. It's a holy law, and we're unable to keep it. It shows us our sin. It convicts us. It shows us of what we ought to be, but it also shows us what we're not. He says, don't rely on it. Not for your salvation. Not for God's favor. Rely on Christ and what He's done for God's favor. That's, that's bedrock. In verse 11, he quotes, he quotes Habakkuk. He says, out of Habakkuk 2, that the righteous shall live by faith. Now, we've got, I've pulled the, the greater uh, uh, additional verses there. What is happening is Habakkuk is a watchman on the wall, and God is giving him as a prophet a great vision. He's given him a vision that Judah is going to be conquered by Babylon. Babylon is going to come in with all of its cruelty, and they're going to take over Judah. Those that are not God's people are going to dominate, enslave, capture God's people. And Habakkuk says, I don't understand. This doesn't make sense to me. Why would you do that to your people, God? Well, their hearts have really drifted. Judah's heart has drifted far from God. And he's going to use this captivity period to make their heart begin to once again long for a pure relationship with God. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. In other words, he's saying, my people, I credit them with righteousness. I call them pure and favored and clean. Even in their captivity, even when Babylon comes, if they continue to trust me 
if they continue by faith. Though they don't understand how this works, if they will just realize, even in the captivity, by looking to me in faith, that they have my favor. They would have understood this. Paul will go on in verse 21. He will say, If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. He's saying there is no law that you could obey that will give you life. There's no rules that you can follow that will give you life. He's saying the law, just like their Babylonian captors, the law captures us. In verse 22, he uses the word, the scripture imprisoned everything under, under sin. Why? So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now again, this is, this is deep truth here, but what he's saying is the law, and he says it in verse 24, the law is a guardian until Christ could come. Think of a prison where the law is your guard. You're captured. You're in prison. You're a captive in prison until Christ comes and you're paroled. And in prison, you're told what the rules are. And you must conform. That prison life is challenging at best. It's hard. You're living by the rules. Get out of line and you're punished. And then... Christ, it says in verse 13, redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. So we're taken captive and there's going to come a point where I'm released and now in my liberty and my freedom, boy, do I really appreciate that. But more than anything, I appreciate the one that granted me my freedom because my record, I could never obey all the rules in my captivity that would grant me freedom. And every time I would blow one, I would beat myself up again. But then Christ comes and the bars are, I mean, the doors are wide open and I'm allowed to go free. But Christ stays in my place. That word for redeemed in verse 13 is a word that you would hear in the marketplace of all places. And it means also ransom or the purchase price for a bond servant, a slave. Now, slavery existed, but nothing like we understood around the period of the Civil War. Totally different system. You could be a, you could indenture yourself to a family or to a, a person of some substance, and they could go to the marketplace and they could say, I need, a, I need a maid or I need a gardener. And not on an auction block, but there would be people there and say, hey, well, I'm available. I need to get out of debt. I will work for you and you will settle my debt and I'll work for you until somebody comes along and either purchases me or you sell me or I pay off the debt I owe to you. Family members would go to the marketplace when they knew that they had a brother, a sister, a daughter, a son, maybe a father or mother that 
was going to be sold or exchanged. And they would get together their funds and they would redeem them. Not purchase them for slavery or bond service, but purchase them for freedom, for life. You're free. And that's what Christ did. Isn't that beautiful? And He did it on the cross. So we need to see not only what He did, but how He did it. So we need to see, in just the time that remains, we need to see Christ crucified. Paul was obsessed with the cross and Christ on the cross. Christ crucified on the cross. And he says that the hell, the way that Christ set us free, free to live now outside of this prison of rules and live in the freedom of a relationship with Him is He became a curse. In the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, we read that there were, um, there were a number of pagan kings. And God said, they're my enemies. They're my objects of wrath. And I curse them. Joshua, as they take the land of Canaan, conquers these kings and their cities. They then execute the kings. They then hang them on trees. They didn't hang them on the tree. The Romans were the ones that devised crucifixion to die on a tree. But they hung them on the tree because cursed are those that are on tree. They hung them up so that all could see this is what happens to God's enemies. These do not get entombed. They do not get the dignity of a burial or cremation. They're hung up to be exposed, naked, to be for the birds, for the mocking, for the laughter, for us to say, this is what happens to God's enemies. This is what happens to those that are cursed by God. Can I tell you the scandal? I'm a little hesitant, but you're in my church. Not to be profane. This would, have, this, would have, this would have rankled every, every Jewish hearer. They would have taken great offense. Not simply, what? You're saying that I don't deserve God's favor? You're saying that there's nothing, all the things that I've done for God, that I don't get the reward of His favor from that? Now you're telling me that it's in this cursed, this man who is cursed because he was on a tree? That's where life is found. That's where favor is found. But it was when Christ was on the cross, when it says He became a curse, literally, God damned the Messiah. Did you hear that? God said, all of your sin, everyone's sin, the most vile sin, Every sin, He became that. And justice was not withheld. Why is this important? Why is this important that you see Him dying this way? Very simply this. The same way He died is the same way you're blessed. 
Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So what happens is, the same way that he was cursed is the same way that I will be blessed. God did not hold any of his wrath back. Now we understand. Now perhaps we have insight as to why Christ on the cross with his final words would say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Completely forsaken. So that in the same way, you'll never be forsaken, little one. You'll never be forsaken. But my sin, Pastor Phil, you don't know. Man, I fall off that wagon. You will never be forsaken. You will never be forsaken. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I think. You will never be forsaken. You will never be forsaken in the same way that he was forsaken. Robert Murray McShane, Scottish pastor, said, the way that we shall defeat the flesh and sin is to take one look at our sin, ten looks at him. You see that? If we narcissistically focus on our sin, then we're going to have a bent to exhaustive discipline, list, um, rules. And the law, as we're going to see as it unfolds, has a great, not today, but it has a great purpose to show us how we can, as sons and daughters, become the people that God has designed us to be. But the law will never help you defeat your sin. Never. But a look. And to see Him, see what it cost Him, a look, and to see Him who loved us to do that. It's Martin Luther saying, wow, the righteous, those that are made right to God, they're going to live by the faith that they're made right through what He did. We're going to live, we're going to experience freedom over sin, not through the law. This... Um, the hymn writer says it best. What wondrous love is this that calls the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse, O my soul. This morning, we come to this table and what I want to encourage you to do is I want to encourage you along with me to rehearse the curse. I, uh, on the back side of the Navy base, there's a long stretch of road that on Fridays I take a walk. And it's about a three-mile walk. But it's, I see alligators, I see plenty of turtles in the water, and this week I saw about a six-foot-long, I thought it was ten-foot first saw it. It's probably only two feet, and I was like a girl, a little girl. But I see this six-foot-long black, gray snake. And I'm sure it was just some type of water snake. I didn't get that close to it, though I almost stepped on it. What was it in me, I thought, that wanted to pick up a rock and hit the snake? And I mean, it was stretched out, just like this, this sound cord here, except it was a lot rounder. What was it that caused me to look at that snake with revulsion. 
what was it that caused me to look at that snake and think back? You have roots that connect you to Satan. What was it? And I thought, wow, isn't it interesting how you see a snake and you start thinking about cursed are you so that you should crawl on your belly? Well, this morning, we celebrate the communion table every Sunday. And the design is very purposeful. It's so that we can look at this broken bread, we can look at this cup, and we can see Christ crucified. We can see Christ torn apart by God's wrath, Christ becoming a curse for us. And it says in Hebrews that that was His glory. That was His prize. There was no reluctance on His part. He said, I will gladly do this. Why? That He can win us by our faith, looking to Him now. He can win us as His sons and daughters and now to walk with Him in freedom of a relationship. Heavenly Father, I ask that You would take this bread and this cup and that as we take of this, that we would rehearse the curse. We would rehearse in our mind that we are not cursed any longer. There is no curse that remains. It's completely satisfied in Christ. Oh, crucified one. Oh, how you loved us. Oh, how you loved us. Oh, how you loved us so. And now we adore you. And we ask that you would strengthen us by your death on our behalf. You would strengthen us that we might now live as becomes followers of you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.